everybody's in a chipper mood this morning. Um, thanks for bringing the church into this building. You never know in our context, in our cultural backdrop, uh, Chick-fil-A once a year has a, a big uh, shindig and... We always think it's going to be a gigantic ghost town around here on Sunday mornings when that happens because of the representation in our church, and that is not the case this morning. So glad to have you guys here, uh, and for those who do happen to be engaging on the digital platform, uh, thank you for bringing the church into spaces like these. If we haven't met, my name is Jamie. Uh, I get to do most of the preaching around here as we open up God's Word together as a means of grace. Excited to do that. Uh, I want to go ahead and invite you actually to uh, open up to Luke chapter 13 because we've got a good bit of ground to cover this morning. Uh, we're going to be in verse 22 and working our way through the rest of the chapter. If you are new to our church, uh, just to invite you into where we are, we've been working through this book of the Bible for, uh, I don't know what now... A year and a couple months, and we're about halfway through, if that gives you any indication uh, as to uh, some of the, the timeline of where we're headed. Hope, hopefully, uh, going to finish this book up by the end of the summer. You can surely go back and engage some of the, the older sermons in this series to, to kind of get a framing, but I'll give you something of a, of a big picture framing as we move into our time this morning in God's Word. Let me go ahead and, and pray for us, and, and we'll do just that. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son into the world to die in the place of lost sinners like me. Thank you for the book of Luke. There are many passages that I think it would be fair to say many preaching pastors would prefer to keep at a 10-foot distance perhaps skip over and on to the next feel-good passage of Scripture, this morning's passage being one of those very passages. Jesus, your red-letter words, they're heavy. They come with the weight of eternity behind them. And yet we believe as a church that the entirety of Scripture is inerrant. It does not return void when it is proclaimed. It is authoritative for our lives. And so I pray this morning through what might be some of the most controversial words that you have to say in Luke's gospel account, Jesus, particularly in our cultural moment, that you would save the lost and that for we who proclaim to know and love and follow you, that our hearts would be filled with joyful gratitude for your finished work and with that paired a sobering urgency to get out and, and to tell people about the hope of salvation that's found in you. Holy Spirit, we invite you to do these things. We actually urge you to do these things, without which this is an exercise in futility. And I trust that you will, that you will awaken our minds, our hearts, that you will transform us from the inside out as we, as we sit with your word this morning. Do these things, that you might receive the glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we might receive the joy and that it would be for our good. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and King, I pray. Amen. So, for those of you who aren't new, this is a reminder. If you are new, this is maybe a first pass at this. I want to give us some sort of indication as to where we find ourselves in Luke's gospel account as we dive in this morning. Namely, in the second act of, of a great redemptive two-act play, you might say. The first act meant to answer the question, who is Jesus? 
Who is this Jesus who calms the winds and the waves with his voice? Who is this Jesus who raises the dead and casts out demons with a word by the legions at times? The curtain closing on act one, so to speak, with Peter's famous declaration, you are the Christ of God, the Messiah. The second act meant to answer the question, what has Jesus come to accomplish? The curtain opening on act two with Jesus's bold prophetic proclamation, I'm here to suffer, to die, and to rise from the grave. A prophecy that if we continue to read Luke's gospel account, and we surely will, uh, we'll see that Jesus's disciples struggle to accept these words all the way up to the very last chapter. Jesus now, as we find ourselves in chapter 13 on the journey to Jerusalem where he would soon die in the place of lost sinners, as you just heard me pray. Jerusalem, now the goal, the focal point of where this story's headed. Which is why Luke tells us, if you pick up this morning's passage, chapter 13, verse 22. He, Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying through Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few What will the population of the kingdom be? Overcrowded? Undercrowded? Its own ghost town of sorts? It's a question that many have wrestled with, both in Jesus' day and and in our day. Most Jewish rabbis in Jesus' day believed that some would be saved and that others would be condemned. And yet there was something of a consensus regarding the salvation of the Jewish people, a belief that that all except for a few blatant, prominent sinners would be saved. In other words, the the thought that only a few would be saved, where a question like this might come from, it was based on the notion that the Gentiles would by and large be condemned. The few, so to speak, being the vast majority of the Jewish population with the rest of the world on the outside looking in. Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Notice that Jesus doesn't directly answer the question. At least not in the same explicit way as we see in the Sermon on the Mount, where you have very similar language. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus says there, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Sermon on the Mount offers something of a parallel to Jesus' teaching in this morning's passage, Luke 13. In the case of the Sermon on the Mount, a more explicit answer to the question of the many versus the few. Jesus uses that language, in fact. How many enter by the wide gate that leads to destruction? Many, Jesus says. How many enter by the narrow gate that leads to life? Few. Coming back to this morning's passage, Jesus is less direct in answering the question as it pertains to the the many versus the few who will be saved. Why? Notice the first thing that Jesus says in response to the question. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Jesus takes a question having to do with salvation in a broad numerical sense, and he makes it extremely intensely personal. His concern is not with talking about the population statistics of the kingdom. His concern is with the salvation of his hearers, those who are sitting right in front of him. 
that they not miss the kingdom themselves in failing to see their own need for him. It's a sobering thought for the 21st century American evangelical church, is it not? Naturally gravitating to numbers and metrics. All the while perhaps failing oftentimes to see our own desperate need for Jesus. The weight of eternity at stake, which helps to make sense of the language that Jesus uses here. The word translated strive, verse 24, it's the Greek word agonizomai. It's where we get our English word agonize. In other words, Jesus is declaring casual consideration of my teaching and of my kingdom is a fool's errand. It's no good. Jesus here inviting his hearers to agonize over their response as they stand at the narrow door. Jesus elsewhere in scripture declaring himself to be that very door. John chapter 10 verses 7 through 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. What does Jesus mean when he says that he's the the door of the sheep? Well, for one, it's a declaration that Jesus is the only hope of salvation. It's the language of exclusivity. He doesn't say, I am a door. He says, I am the door. Very similar to another of Jesus' I am statements, very famous verse, John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's an incredibly offensive statement, is it not, in our culture as the U.S. is becoming more and more pluralistic by the day. It's considered intolerant to claim that your religion is the only right religion. Who would dare say that? Well, Jesus would. It's exactly what he says. He declares that there aren't multiple doors into the kingdom of heaven. There aren't multiple paths up the mountaintop. He's the small passageway, he says. The small door. The small gate into the sheepfold. Into the kingdom of God. It's why Peter would go on to say in Acts chapter 4, verses 11 through 12... This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That Jesus himself says he is the only way to enter the kingdom of heaven. It gets into that C.S. Lewis, Lord, liar, lunatic stuff. You can't just call him a good teacher and be done with him. Because he says crazy, heavy things like this. I'm it. I'm the only way, the only portal into heaven. If you don't come through me, you don't get in, Jesus says. That there's a door so narrow that it's easy to miss it. Like treasure hidden in a field. Or a pearl of great price hidden beneath the water. A door so narrow, as we've seen in Luke's gospel account, with the language of discipleship, that it forces us to leave some things behind. Things that just don't fit through the kingdom of heaven door. Things associated with the kingdom of this world, which Jesus has contrasted with his good kingdom throughout Luke's gospel account. 
Things like the crowd majority, which Jesus says will inevitably choose the broad path. Things like selfishness, ego, pride. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says elsewhere, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's the narrow way, the narrow door. It's very difficult for us to get our minds around this because we live in a context where there are benefits to proclaiming to be a Christian. You have to be a part of a a member of a local church to get your kids into the local private school, right? It's very strange. Feels very broad around here, in a sense. And yet Jesus describes something very upside down. The door that swings open to the poor in spirit, to use the language of the Beatitudes. The door that swings open to those who mourn sin and, and its ravaging effects in this broken world. The door that swings open to the gentle and the lowly in heart. The door that swings open to those who hunger to be conformed to God's will, who long for purity of heart. To be like Christ. The door that swings open to the peacemakers and those persecuted for righteousness sake. Though it's difficult for us to get our minds around it in our context. It's a lonelier path Jesus says. In that fewer enter through that door. Perhaps few even in a context like ours. It's not the path applauded by the vast majority. It won't win you very many popularity contests. Going back to last week, few people want their picture taken in front of a mustard bush. It's not pretty. It's unruly. Give me a cedar of Lebanon in the background before I post it on Facebook. Jesus' kingdom is such an upside-down kingdom, isn't it? The wisdom of the world says, enter by the broad gate. That path is plenty populated and plenty wide. Wisdom personified in the person of Jesus Christ says, enter by the narrow gate, enter through the narrow door. It's the way to true freedom. It's the way to indestructible joy. He goes on in verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves cast out. Here, Jesus declares that not only is there a narrow door the door of entry into the kingdom of God, but two, that that narrow door won't always be open. That many will stand outside of that door begging for the master to open it, but it'll be too late as those outside will be cast away forever. Like those who stood outside the ark in Noah's day as the door was shut and the floodwaters came, wishing that they hadn't complained about the exclusivity of the one sufficient door. Jesus here exhorting those within earshot to to enter while there's still time, while the narrow door is still open. Here again, Jesus' words incredibly similar to his Sermon on the Mount teaching, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, where we're told he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Sermon on the Mount, we've been through it as a church. It wasn't too long ago for us in the rearview mirror. It takes up the better part of three chapters of the Bible. As Jesus teaches about a kingdom righteousness that works from the inside out. A heart transformation by God's grace compelling glad submission to the Father's will. The inside of the cup informing the outside of the cup. That what Jesus is saying is it's possible to profess him as Lord, even perform mighty works of power in his name while failing to truly know him and be known by him. If that's possible, it's surely possible to go to church every Sunday and somehow find yourself standing on the outside looking in when all's said and done. It's surely possible to lead a Bible study even. I mean, we're not talking about a heretical confession. Rather, an orthodox confession in declaring Jesus as Lord. We're not talking about an embarrassed, privatized confession, but rather a public confession evidenced in mighty works done in Jesus' name. According to James 2.19, sobering verse, even the demons believe and shudder. Even Judas had the power to cast out demons. Jesus is talking about people who believe themselves to be in a clear expectation of welcomed entrance into the master's house. And to that, Jesus says, verse 29, and people will come from from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Here Jesus declares not only the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, the first, last, the last first, getting into some of that poverty of spirit thinking that we see in the Beatitudes, but two, the inclusion of the Gentiles, praise God, at the great banqueting table of heaven's king from the east and west, the north and south, through the narrow door into the portals of heaven. Others all the while standing on the outside looking in, Those who were sure, who were sure that theirs was the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus doesn't say that this will be the case with a few, but rather that many will say to him, Lord, Lord, we ate and drank in your presence, verse 26, and you taught in our streets. Charles Spurgeon once said, The rock of presumption and the siren song of self-confidence entice many. Many have been lost and are wailing at their everlasting ruin. Their loss is to be traced to nothing more than that they never examined themselves to discover whether they were in the faith. Again, not everyone who grew up in the church will enter the kingdom. Not everyone who can rifle off words like eschatology and soteriology will enter the kingdom. Not everyone who membered up and put their kids in in the right private school will enter the kingdom. Only, only, only through the narrow door who is Christ can anyone enter the kingdom. Jesus himself says as much. 
And we who have entered through that door, as we've talked about numerous times in this series, we should be shouting from the rooftops right now, oh, what grace. Oh, what grace. As I said a couple weeks ago, I should be in hell right now. Right now. And yet God made a door for rebellious sinners like me. The one sufficient door itself, a testament to his sovereign mercy and grace. As Jesus says elsewhere, rejoice, not that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. At that very hour, Jesus tells us, verse 31, some Pharisees came. They said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. That's weird, right? Pharisees aren't known to do that. They had a reputation for trying to trap Jesus, for looking for incriminating evidence that they could use against him. And here we find them warning him that the very same Herod who had ordered the execution of his forerunner, John the Baptist, was out for his head too. Which makes sense. Herod was a deeply insecure man. Jesus is is gaining prominence. Who knows what the motivation of, of the Pharisees is here. Maybe these Pharisees were different than the others. Perhaps your, your Nicodemus types. Maybe they were looking to instill fear in Jesus. Maybe they wanted to, him to hurry his way to Jerusalem where they had more jurisdiction, more authority, more control. Whatever the reason, Luke doesn't tell us, he's far more concerned in focusing on Jesus' response. Look at verse 32. And Jesus said to them, I love this, go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jesus is not afraid of Herod and his murderous threats. Why would he be? After all, he came into the world to die. Here publicly referring to Herod as a fox. A scoundrel, an acknowledgement not only of Herod's cunning, deceitful nature, but too a term of weakness and dishonor. The fox contrasted with the lion in the Jewish language and culture of Jesus' day. If you're a C.S. Lewis lover, you love that one. The lion, a representation of true power, true greatness, of a right and mighty roar, which Herod didn't have in the economy of God. A weak man, an insecure man, grappling at power, grappling at authority. There was no way Jesus was going to take his marching orders from a man like that. As he had committed himself to to bringing God's plan of redemption to completion in the fullness of time. Looking all the way back to Jesus' words in chapter 9. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem like flint. He was committed. Here again, Luke reminding us of where we are at this point in the story. On the journey to the city in which Jesus' very words would be fulfilled, the redemptive promise of a crucified and risen Messiah. Jesus' declared commitment, verse 32, to finish his course on the third day. That language itself alluding to the completed work of redemption to come when Jesus would conquer the grave through his resurrection three days after his crucifixion. He goes on in closing out this morning's passage. 
O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This would have been absolutely shocking for a first century Jewish person to hear. As Jesus further clarifies his teaching on the narrow door. Again, many Jews believe that that they had a seat at the master's table in the promised coming of the kingdom of God. Going all the way back to chapter 3, John the Baptist. We're told, chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, John did, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As John was baptizing people in the Jordan River, there were Jews in the crowd who expected those of of Gentile descent to receive John's baptism as a means of ritual cleansing and, and being brought into the covenant community. An act of cleansing from which they themselves thought they were exempt, believing they were already clean because they belonged to God's people. John boldly declaring that there are none who are exempt from their need for the cleansing work of the Lord in their lives. Setting the stage for the cleansing work of Jesus, the narrow door through whom we enter into the kingdom. Which is not only key in Luke's gospel account, but even more explicitly brought to bear in the sequel, the book of Acts. If you were around for that study when we went through that book, you know it well. Coming back to this morning's passage, surely something of a shock to the system in rattling the messianic expectations of many in the crowd that day. The people of God, the city of God. And Jesus declares them a house forsaken in their forsaking of the narrow door. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing Might we be shocked if Jesus stepped into our context today, our 21st century American evangelical southern context, with all its Bible Belt frills and expectations, and might he say something that would absolutely shock our systems if he were to speak? Philip Ryken in his commentary says, This warning is not just for the Jews who saw Jesus, but for every person who has ever worshipped in a Christian church. We have read the miracles of Jesus in the pages of the New Testament. We have heard his preaching of the gospel. We have seen his saving work through the eyewitnesses of his crucifixion and resurrection. Hear this one. We have sat at his table to eat and drink with him in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. But do we know Jesus, he asks. Do we have a real personal relationship with him? Have we gone to him in repentance, confessing our sins? Have we received him in faith, trusting in his cross? Or 
Do we know him only socially and superficially? There are only two ways, one that leads to life and the other to destruction. I would ask this morning, do you know this Jesus? Do you have a real personal relationship with him? Have you gone to him in repentance? Have you received him in faith? Hear me, it's not sufficient to sit under preaching about the door. You must enter through it. So that I would urge any and all who are standing on the outside of that door this morning to repent of your sins and to trust in Jesus while there's still time. The door won't remain open forever. Jesus himself says as much. And it's a door that sadly few will enter. For we who have entered that door by grace through faith, again, these words of Jesus are meant to fill us with both joyful gratitude and sobering compassion and urgency. Joyful gratitude that that God made a way for a rebellious sinner like me, that he gave me a door, the one sufficient door itself. Again, a testament to his sovereign mercy and grace. Wonder of wonders that there's a way into this kingdom. Paired with a sobering urgency, And compassion, something that we see in those words of Jesus. How often I would have gathered you under my wings, but you weren't willing. We live amidst a sea of people believing they have a seat at the master's table. In gatherings just like these, perhaps in this very room. All the while standing on the outside looking in. Knowing Jesus in Riken's words only socially and superficially. Or in the language we use as a church, culturally and nominally Christian. We have a message of hope, church. A God who, who gathers sinners in Christ, to use the language of this morning's passage, under the safety of his wings. A door on the other side of which is an indestructible kingdom of joy. Hallelujah, right? May God fan into flame in our hearts as we consider the wonder of of that hope and joy, a deeper zeal for evangelism that many more might enter through that door. We have a mission before us as we leave this place. Not only to walk away leveled by the wondrous, lavish, overwhelming mercy and grace of God in our own lives, but to tell others about this door, to not be embarrassed by this door, to not be ashamed that there aren't other doors, but to tell people that this door is sufficient and glorious and good. In a moment, we're going to continue to worship the door, the door of the sheep, Jesus Christ, our hope, our salvation, We get to do that through our song, collectively, as we gather in this place. As you sing, I I just encourage you to consider that, that as the words are coming forth from your mouth, it's a declaration that you're not embarrassed of the one sufficient door. Let's sing loudly, declaring the hope that, yes, is found in Christ and Christ alone, but Christ is good enough. We get to worship 
through the receiving of the Lord's Supper. A means of grace that if you're a Christian is for you. Uh, There are cups on the back table if you missed it on your way in. Throughout the course of of the remainder of our time of singing, you're welcome to take the bread whenever you're prepared to do so and dip it in the cup, representing the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I encourage you not to take of communion, but that your next step would be one of trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. As you prepare to receive of that bread... And of the cup, I just encourage you to consider where this story is headed. It's headed to a cross, an empty tomb, and it, it had to head there. There was no other way. And so I pray as you receive those elements this morning, that again, that you would rejoice in the way that was made through the broken body of your Savior and King, through the shed blood of your Savior and King. Let's continue to worship Him together.